Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 413th episode of Constructed Chrism. I am your salmon-loving host, Mason, joined by my pasta-loving co-host, Abe Stein. Abe, how are you doing? I do love a good tortellini. You are so good at these, Mason. Like, we've been doing this show for quite a while now, and you have never... Well, you've disappointed before, but you've never, like, truly disappointed, and the highs are so unbelievably high on these that mm. I, I really do... I, I let go of the woes. I don't try to spend too much time. Kind of like right before we get started, I'm trying to figure out where we're going to go. You know, and that's why sometimes anime's on the brain. Bring up anime a couple weeks in the row. Also, what's so wrong with talking about a little anime? You know, that's what I'm always saying. Anime's good. Yeah, great. Speaking of anime is good, unfortunately, our friend Spencer is on family duty. His family's got some stuff going on this week. Nothing bad, just busy, busy time of the year. So Spencer had to take this week off, but he'll be back next week for the episode of Constructed Criticism. He got a little two-week vacation. What a, what a treat. But we do have a special guest on today. Uh, we have an L2 Garrison who's going to come on and talk to you all about judges and how becoming a judge can help you in magic and how to interact and deal with judges we think it's a really important thing uh we've listened and we heard from a lot of you that you started playing magic at the beginning of the pandemic and you've played a lot of online but playing in person there's a lot of like anxieties and thoughts and stuff that goes into judges and we're going to go over all of that with garrison here in just a couple of minutes but first we do need to do always improving as that's the main point of the show and Abe, it's my turn to go first here. And my always improving comes from a little thing we've been doing in our free time. You know, last week I mentioned a little, we've been doing some No Bantless Modern. Uh, maybe I mentioned that on a podcast I guessed it on. The last couple of weeks I've been a little podcast crazy going around. But this last week, Area has been obsessed with roto drafting. All about rotisserie drafting, which if you've never done before, is essentially you pick a card legality and then... Much like a fantasy draft, you take one card at a time, and you do 45, and you build your decks, and you play. And the Bioware's Improving Moment comes from really understanding, and I think crystallizing the idea about replacement level effects and how the rate of replacement is so high and why it's so important. I think it actually matters a lot for constructed formats as well. So basically, the idea is like, if you were doing, let's say, like a modern format rotisserie draft, right? Where you're drafting, you could take any card and build your deck. Something like Devoted Druid is a very unique effect, right? And if you want to build a deck with Devoted Druid, you need to have Devoted Druid. And if you can't have more things that do Devoted Druid, you need to find ways to supplement that, right? And I think that's super important because I think so often when looking at deck building and things like that, when we're trying to figure out how to solve these problems, the rate of replacement on something matters so much. So like in Pioneer, right? Like the best shocks are like, and it varies from time to time between like Flame Bless Bolt and Fiery Impulse and Strangle. But like the next one is always typically a lot worse because they don't all cover the exact same thing. So figuring out that and understanding that I think is really good for building your deck, but also understanding why your deck might not work and save a lot of time in the brewing process. Where it's like, I really want to play this, like, let's say God Pharaoh's Gift deck in Pioneer, but I just don't have enough ways to find the gate to the afterlife. So I don't know if I can actually play this deck, despite a lot of it going really well, because you don't have that sort of redundancy in the effect. It's kind of like the classic rule of eight, you know, like once you have eight Bushwhackers, you can play a Bushwhacker deck. Or once you have eight Elves, we can see the Pioneer deck. So that's been my real big level at the moment. I think that's really cool. I kind of was the one who really introduced you to the spark of uh, history drafting a long time ago now, probably like three or four months. 
from doing it with some local friends of mine. There's a lot of really, really cool stuff you can kind of see in front of you that you wouldn't see playing Magic normally, right? You normally get to just say, I'm going to play four of the good cards and, uh, you know, build my deck upwards with all the cards I want. But when you're kind of fighting over and deciding between, you know, which, which is better? Am I going to have counter magic? Am I going to have discard? Am I going to have cheap removal? You know, really prioritizing those things. Or, or like, am I going to have the uh, the best threats? You know, like, am I going to take the, the strongest things to be doing or do I want the strongest answers to things? Kind of having those questions in front of you can really uh, help you think about these big macro concepts that come up a lot in magic when it comes to deck building or, or deciding on decks that you wouldn't really see naturally otherwise. It might, might be hard to see. So that's really cool. My always improving mode this week has been working a lot on Pioneer since the bans. We've talked about the, uh, the humans deck last week that I have that I've been working on with Pyre of Heroes and Extraction Specialist. That deck, still working on it, still trying to work out some kinks with it, but I wanted to continue to explore and try new ideas I had before really, you know, committing to to working on refining one brew or playing this mono green deck that really looks like it is just the best deck in the format right now. But finding angles of attack and exploring things that cards that people don't play despite being powerful or um, new ways to approach archetypes. Uh, having seen a little bit of success with the the humans deck and and really feeling like there's promise there, want to make sure I'm leaving no stones unturned. So I spent a lot of time the last few days just having ideas for decks, picking the cards that I think. I'm trying to explore the most and really working with them to see where it goes and, you know, drawing up lists and playing them through leagues and seeing, uh, seeing what's up. One of the ones that I probably spent the most time on was Heart of Kieran. I think that card is just really, really powerful and efficient. But, you know, I kind of found that the colors that would be best at, like, supporting it are kind of black and red. But the black red mid-range deck is already kind of doing the Heart of Kieran thing better by just playing a broader suite of answers doesn't really want a threat like this. So kind of shelved it for now, but even in the process of finding things that don't work, I've learned a lot about why they don't and what they need. Something that you talk about a lot when you uh, have been working with some of the off-beaten paths modern decks over the last six months. And it's been really cool to spend time doing that and and continue brewing. Something that I think is one of the, the weaker parts of my game, but taking the time to exercise it to, to get better at it and see more. So, Yeah, I think that's great. I, it's something you know we've talked about a little bit. Uh, when it comes to like this sort of format specifically in Pioneer, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are really interested in Pioneer with Atlanta coming up as Pioneer and a lot of RCQs are going to be Pioneer. The mono green deck is good. Like it's just a very good deck. Uh, I'm like writing about it from my article this week on Card Kingdom. And it is also has lots of chances to do small innovations, but the core of the deck is so locked in and the card pool is kind of small enough that like the Pioneer like we kind of know that there's like a couple flex slots main, yeah, two to th- maybe three in your sideboard, and that's it. And so the mono green machine is a known quantity, and you can kind of attack it, and they can do little things to pivot, but you know where it's going to be, and you also know like, hey, all my time playing against green, I'm kind of learning what the deck looks like, what the optimal things are, and so if it comes time where you just can't find something you're happy to play besides green, then you know, boom, you just pivot in you become the green machine instead. So I think that uh, it's been really interesting to explore. And my exploration of Pioneer, for the most part, last week has been a lot more tamer than yours. I've just been like blue-red cards, basically. <laughs> but uh, it has been interesting doing a lot of weird stuff, like 
no Arclight Phoenixes and just things like that. So uh, I, I think the format's super cool. And I hope we get to talk about it here probably the next week or two. We're gonna we're gonna go over some pioneer stuff right before RCQ season starts up and we have a bunch of results uh to go into things. Just out of curiosity, Abe, if you had to tell the listeners to get one deck that wasn't monogreen, let's just say a listener's here and they're like, oh, I want to play Pioneer, I want to compete, but I just I cannot play Mono Green. I've tried playing it. I hate it. It's not fun. I'd rather play a worse deck and have more fun. What would be your uh, first suggestion? I think my first suggestion, partially just based on the fact that I think that mono green might be a problem that needs outside solving, let's say, where uh, Watson might have to step in and, and touch some cards. Oh, wow. I didn't know I, that I was your opinion on it. I've seen a lot of this happen, and I think that in the coming... I, I think it either breaks one of two ways. Either things shake out and mono green starts getting preyed on and we're all good, or mono green stays a little too good and the win rate's too high in moto events that happen. The RCQ season's coming, the RCQ itself, or the yeah, the regional championship itself comes, and mono green's too good, and they want to make sure that's not the case. I would say the red-black deck. The red-black mid-range deck is, it's a very fair deck. It plays lots of very good cards that are far from being touched and will always be able to adapt with very few changes to be a deck that can contend with the metagame. You know, it just plays a lot of the best interaction, Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, Bone Crusher Giant, just generically good cards on rate that and, and good plans to interact with everything. It, it's rarely completely out of a matchup. You know, Misplaced Ginger has done a lot of winning with it on, on Moto, and he plays probably the most pioneer out of anyone I know, and really only with that deck. And it really shows that there's room for there to be mastery of an archetype like that and to to gain those edges with it. So I would say that would I, if I had to win the tournament and it was my number one priority, would I play Red Black Midrange? No. Would I say it's a it's an unreasonable choice or a bad choice? Also, no. I think that uh, I think it's a deck that is really appealing to a lot of people's sensibilities, what they like about magic, trading pieces of cardboard, attacking, blocking, and it's it's very good at all that. Yeah, I think that's my pick for the second best deck right now. I do think it has a bit of a modern green problem, but I think that's kind of a, a format thing as well. And so I think I think I would say that deck, and if I had to give you another option, because maybe you're just like not doing that and you're so curious, I am still a pretty big believer in the blue-red stuff. Treasure Cruise and Interaction has proven to be really good and kind of figuring out, do you want to be Shreddering? Do you want to be Thing in the Icing? Maybe even both in a deck. That's my next thing to explore is no big cards, no Arclight Phoenix, is just Ledger Shredder Thing in the Ice. I think there's maybe something there, because I've been trying just Crackling Drake and Thing in the Ice a little bit today, and it's been surprisingly good. So I think there's a lot of room to be explored there. And when you have such powerful cards like Treasure Cruise and Temporal Trespass when combined with the Galvanic Iteration, I think there's a lot of room to figure out how to beat a deck. And it might involve having a medium-ish game one than having like Fort Gust, two Burning Hands, your sideboard plan if you're going to compete against Modern Green. So that would be mine. But enough of that, Abe. Let's get into some meat and potatoes with our special guest, Garrison. But for our main topic today... We have a special guest on the show, uh, a friend of mine and a great judge. You've probably seen at a lot of events or at least seen on the back of, uh, you know, the side of a coverage thing. You know, you go back and you watch an old SCG match, Harlan versus Abe. You're going to see Garrison right there making sure they don't miss anything and then shaking his head when they have to stop the match and do it. Garrison, thanks so much for coming on today to talk about everything with judges from how to be one to, you know, kind of going over interacting with the judge. But I think it's good to kind of start with, what level are you and kind of all, you know, the old system and the new and what all the everything between and then let's hop into the meat and potatoes and stuff. 
Yeah. Hi, friends. Uh, my name is Garrison Fote. I'm a level two judge from Cookville, Tennessee. I made level two before Judge Academy took over. That might not mean too much right now, but I'll explain that a little bit. So that means my historic level is level two. And then I've stayed recent with Judge Academy to be a level two through Judge Academy as well. Awesome. Great. And Judge Academy is the new program, correct? For that maybe have like kind of fallen out of things during the height of COVID. Yeah. So, you know, the whole world has been in a lot of flux over the past three or so years. The judge community has as well. Before 2019 or during 2019, we had what was called the judge program. And that was sort of a nonprofit, just collection of judges that existed across the world and had some official support from Wizards of the Coast. In 2019, Wizards of the Coast ended their support of the judge program. And the main certifying bodies for judges now is what's called Judge Academy, which is based out of the Pacific Northwest. And they provide online training and modules for judges to learn and certify themselves, along with some other uh, services and sort of community building as well. I think that we'd be, we're going to cover a lot of different stuff today about like everything in between just but probably the best place to start is how becoming a judge can level up your game, because that's something that is important. You know, Garrison, you have a Grand Prix top eight to your name as well that you got during the, the COVID times with, I believe it was Icoria Standard. Am I correct? Yeah, Icoria Standard right after COVID started. It turns out when I can't work events, I get to play in a lot more events and I ended up doing well during that time period. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know Garrison local. It's one of those like we're the same state at all the big events together type thing. Uh, Garrison is a very strong player. And so how does help becoming a judge level your game? Because that was one of the things that when we first talked, you mentioned all these things that I think are the very stereotypical, like have a judge on your show kind of talk about. And then at the end of it, you were like, and have a judge level up your game. Uh, how it becoming level up your game. So what that is kind of the thing that jumps out to you and let me and Abe kind of pick your brain for a minute for that. One of the main things I think about being a judge can help you as a player because I know on the podcast you guys have the uh, hashtag always improving. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like as a judge, one of the things is that you have a at least basic understanding of several parts of the rules of the game that the average player may not. And whether that's things that, you know, an average player who's been playing for six years, for eight years or so knows a lot about the rules. But going through judge certification and passing the rules tests means that you're going to cover some things that may not come up in all the decks that you normally play. You know, if you're a mid-range player and you've never had to deal, you know, with storm math, going through certification as a judge is going to lead you into certain rule scenarios that you may not have ever really encountered or had to go through the thought process of figuring out as a player if you had never picked those styles of decks. It's sort of like I know a lot of limited podcasts talk about how limited can really help level up your game because you find yourself in novel situations because you're playing a new deck week in and week out. Being a judge can be the same thing where you're running into new scenarios that you wouldn't normally. And then when those scenarios might come up in a real game of magic, you're more prepared to take lines of play that your opponent may not be expecting. They're going to open up new ways to hopefully win games for you. And you also, you know, layer too. You know, that's the thing that keeps coming up all the day with dress, right? Like layer six, drive the Elysian Grove. Am I right? Just right. And, you know, as like I said, so there are playing players who know layers or certain rules interactions as well. But going through becoming a level one judge, one of the things that will test you on is the layer system. And yeah, like you said, you know, 
layer four dryad granting basic land types to all your lands and the layer six losing ability but they're still the lands i've seen several players play around that one of my local judges did not play around that himself because he did not realize the interaction so just because you're a judge doesn't mean you're guaranteed to see those lines when they come up in a game but like you are at least more likely to know some of those corner case scenarios that may give you a slight edge against your opponents were you ever a judge i don't think i asked you that before no i uh <laughs> when i was like 18 I had a friend who I was, who was like really teaching me the ropes and like competitive magic. And he was like, we should go get judge certified because it's pretty free. We know the rules really well. And so I took, they used to have the rules coordinator. Rules advisor. Yeah. Rules advisor. That's what it's called. Um, Mm -hmm. Program. And so you take this test and it was just like a lot of the rules, not really much about tournament procedure or anything. And you like take this online thing. And if you pass it, you like get a little thing. You got a little thing on your like DCI number on this like old website. looked like it was a 97 because it probably was. And so we did that. And then I actually... Like, just wound up sleeping through the day I was supposed to, like, uh, go and shadow a tournament and then take the the L1 test, whereas my friend didn't. He wound up getting certified. But I did find that preparing for that, and not only did I learn a lot about the rules and really just get a lot of things, I was like, oh, I think it works this way. And I was like, oh, that's a dumb multiple choice question. I should have gotten it right. But in actuality, like, I did learn about the rules in these weird situations they'd ask you on, on these online things. And also learning all of the tournament procedure that you would need to know to be a level one really made me feel a lot more comfortable in knowing what was going on when I was at the table as a player, especially, you know, if there was a judge call or I was worried about a penalty, I wouldn't have to like start freaking out and being anxious, but like, Oh, what's going to happen? What happened? I'm like, Oh, I know this is this kind of penalty or this should be this way. It's kind of like a know your rights thing. Like, you know what the outcome is going to be if you make a mistake or if your opponent makes a mistake and you can make sure that things are actually happening as they're supposed to as a player. You know, if a judge calls goes awry or you feel like things are unfair, you kind of have a basis for knowing coming into it, well, either that's the rules or maybe that's not the rules. So it was actually something that really helped me really early on and something I was really glad I did, even if I never became certified. Because I probably would have never judged an event anyway, like playing it too much. That that, that process was, was really, really cool and really cool as a growth thing. So. Uh, one of the things Abe brought up there is the rules advisor. That's still a certification that exists. So like you said, rules advisor is purely about the rules of the game itself. It doesn't go into event logistics. It doesn't go into taking calls. It doesn't go into customer service. It's just, hey, here are rules interactions of the game. Do you know how they work? And you know, if we're just focusing purely on your play, that's a really great thing to, if you know these things, you might know more than the average player does. And then sort of the know your rights thing, like you said, like judges mess things up sometimes. We are human. So having a greater understanding of, yes, this is what normally happens when I draw an extra card and the judge comes to the table and gives you a completely different ruling. If you're more experienced and you've sort of gone through and read through those documents yourself because you've gone through some of the judge training, then you're like, hmm, maybe I do want to appeal this or mm, maybe I really want to ask this judge like to make sure that they are doing the right thing or that they're factoring in all the information they need to factor in for this call. I'll say this and I want to move on from after this, but I I found that one thing that really helped me was as, as I became kind of friends with like you and the other local judges in your area that I'm sure you can think of. And I was able to ask questions and stuff. I had a better understanding for things, which led to not bleeding information. And I've also found that, and I don't know how much conjecture here say this is. I'm curious to see if you agree or disagree. But I've definitely had moments where my opponent asked a judge, and I was able to kind of figure out, like, what kind of thing would happen that they don't know? 
And most recently, I'm joking about it, is Dress Down. You know, like my opponents, like, they don't know how this card works with Dress Down. And so, like, I now know they have Dress Down in their hand. Or, like, I know they're trying to do something along some lines. And so, actually knowing the rules and having, like, a pretty good understanding of them, I think is a huge benefit because you don't have to, like, pause the game. You have more confidence in what you can play and what you can do and also what your opponent is able to be doing. So, I, I think it's a, a huge thing that, like, if you're interested in it, especially with events coming back, having judges is super important, and they really make the game playable, you know? Without them, we wouldn't be able to have, like, these big tournaments, so. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this next little topic here that we wanted to get on, which is why judges are your friends. Now, I just mentioned how, you know, we're friends, obviously, and stuff like that. But in the bigger picture of life, why, why are judges your friends? I think there's a real... Um, stigma around a lot of judges you know a lot of people have a lot of bad stories and have a lot of built-in resentment to judges so why why are judges your friends right and i've definitely seen enough horror stories on reddit i've definitely seen plenty of things where you know oh man like this judge doesn't like me or that you know judges only exist because they want to hand out penalties and things like that the fact is or how it is with my personal community of judges is that when we're at events, we want the event to be better for everyone involved. When I was training as a judge, we sort of focus on three main things. We focus on tournament logistics. We want the tournament to run well and efficiently and for people to get done in a reasonable time. We focus on customer service, that we want people to enjoy their experience and that they are going to enjoy their time, appreciate having been there for the day and have a positive experience. And we want the tournament integrity to be intact whether that's because we're catching cheaters, because when players mess up, we're applying the proper fixes for their infractions, or that we're ensuring that interactions within the game, like rules are being followed and interactions are being done correctly. So in all of those, yes, sometimes we come to the table and we feel or we're seen as the bad guy because we have the opponent thought seize a card out of your hand because that's the fix in the moment. But all of that is applied and the philosophy behind all of that is because we want that experience and we want that event to be as fair and consistent as possible, whether you're at an event in Tennessee or New York, such that when things go wrong in a game, that things will get fixed in the proper way. In addition to that, like I said, in times of calling a judge, you know, Definitely, whenever something goes wrong in a game, you realize you drew an extra card, you realize three turns ago a creature was supposed to die and we never had it put in the graveyard, things like that. Those are great times to call a judge because there may be specific fixes that we do to keep it consistent across the board. But then also like calling us about rules questions or Oracle's text or if you need to step away to use the bathroom and so that you get a proper time extension or all things that we're there as well, because like we want the experience to be positive and we want to come to the table and enjoy um, just sort of interacting with players for a few moments. It's not always just about how do we fix things when they go wrong. I kind of have a question for you that I think a lot of people who are maybe newer to tournament magic, in-person magic kind of have come up and there's like an anxiety or something about it, which is calling a judge when you kind of think something is unsure and it not be like you're trying to accuse your opponent of cheating and something like that. Or like, you know what I mean? Like the, the general anxiety of getting a judge involved. What would you say to someone that kind of feels that? Because I think for a lot of people and a lot of listeners, we've had a lot of people mention how they've started playing Magic or it's about to start really competing, then COVID happened. And now they're coming, you know, as we ease out of lockdown and everything, 
that is becoming an experience that people are going to have to do again since we don't have clients like, you know, Arena or MTG on making the roles just happen. You have to figure out why the weirding happened. So uh, what would you say to that? I guess the first thing I want to say is that calling a judge is something that's supposed to be helpful to the game as a whole and not something that's seen as, oh, I am trying to pull someone in to help me against my opponent in some way. Like when a judge comes to the table, we're trying to get the game back to the right state of whatever it should be in. Like I said, that's because a rule interaction went wrong a few turns ago or that something's about to happen and the players want a better understanding of what's about to happen that moment. One of my friends had a, a sort of statement of anyone who gets upset when you call a judge to the table is someone that you maybe don't trust. Because when a judge comes to the table, our goal is to make that gameplay experience better in whatever way we can whether that's like i said because the rules are being applied more accurately or because we are trying to make sure players have a better understanding of everything going on so if one of the players doesn't want to judge there that doesn't really look great for that player now sometimes people call judges a lot and maybe it's going to be too much but sort of like the first judge call of the day should be fine calling a judge is as well you know it's a neutral arbiter that's coming to the table you know it, we used to use the phrase a lot like your opponent may know the proper rules interaction but they're also your opponent and they're trying to win so you don't always want to take their word for it and there's plenty of great opponents out there and there's plenty of great people who are going to represent the rules in a full and complete sense but at the same time the rules of the game and the rules of tournament policy don't always require them to share all of the details or explain everything that's about to happen with something that's going on. So calling a judge over the table to ask those questions can really be a thing that helps you make sure that you're getting the information you need to make the right decisions in your gameplay. And sometimes um, as well, especially if you're like really new or just haven't been to many paper events yet, that you can ask the judge at the table. Uh, you can also ask judges questions away from the table. You know, stay at the table, raise your hand and call a judge and wait for them to get to you. But once they're there, uh, you can ask to talk away from the table so that you're not sharing hidden information from your hand with your opponent if you're asking about something that isn't fully known to your opponent yet. Abe, hey, is there anything you want to cover on that before we... Yeah, I think uh, another, like, why, how are judges your friends and why they're your friends? I cannot stress enough how many events I have been able to go to that were far away because I'm able to carpool with judges I know or, you know, just having friendly faces to know if I needed to go to an event or I needed a ride somewhere, I would have them. It, like, judges are, I don't know, they're, they're a really big backbone, I think, of Magic on, like, a local and big level. And if you take the time to, like, get to know the judges in your community and develop a report them, trust them, you know, that is, I think, a big part of being able to for a lot of people, access the bigger stages, knowing the people who are the backbone and and help with uh, with not only event logistics, but you know, help with your personal logistics of arriving at an event because carpooling is hard. It's hard to get a bunch of people to want to drive really far, but if you know a judge locally that's working an event, that can be a huge boon. Or who's working the RCQs, and you know, they are people who love magic just like you, and they just engage in a different way. So I think it's it's really important to remember, and I think it's like another one thing that that I want people to be able to take away when they think about judges is that they're just other people who love magic. They're doing this instead of playing. Yeah. Like Mason mentioned earlier, you know, I'm a grinder as well. I've qualified for things before. Like I definitely have the competitive spirit as well. 
but judging allows me to uh, go to events and engage in a different way, but still be involved in like this community that we all love to be a part of. So one of my goals, like you said, sort of with carpooling, when I go to events, is not just to make the event better, but to bring as many people there as I can as well. You know, part of that for me is splitting gas prices and things like that, especially these days. But having people to drive to and from and, you know, even if I'm judging, like hearing all the bad beat stories and, you know, people talk about their play over the course of the day on the way back is like really cool because I don't get to be in the seat to like get to have those plays and stuff like that. So I really appreciate having players in my car whenever I go to events. Well, let's talk about appealing a ruling. So it, once again, if you maybe haven't been to it before, sometimes your judge is going to give you a ruling and you might not agree with that ruling. That That is appealing where typically you'll talk to the head judge after that point. Can we talk about that whole process, Garrison? Because I think that's also a process that's pretty anxiety inducing for a lot of new players and also gets mishandled by uh, veterans of the game, I would, I would say a lot as well. So the first thing to sort of go over with that is essentially any large event may have several judges. at. You know, a lot of time we want about one judge for 40 people. So if we're playing in an 800 person SCG event, we may have 20 or so or maybe like 12 or so judges at that event to help make it work. Now, some of those are going to be L1s, some will be L2s, some may be fresh or newer or, you know, have become judges during COVID. But eventually, there has to be one person in charge, and that's going to be the head judge. And occasionally, there are others that are referred to as appeals or support judges. And typically, at events, you'll see uh, most of the floor judges wearing one color. For SCG events, it's blue. The head judges or support judges are going to be wearing red normally or burgundy if you're at like one of the old a GP from back in the day and things like that. So there's sort of more recognizable. They're going to be wearing a different color shirt. Essentially, while a floor judge can deliver a ruling, and if you accept that ruling, that ruling is a ruling. Every player, when they get a ruling, has the right to be heard by the head judge. They are the final arbiter of whether this is the correct way to apply a fix if something went wrong in the game, or if you receive a warning or a penalty in some way for having done something, the head judges who would have the final say as to whether that's the right warning or infraction or penalty to be given to a player. Say that you're an event and you have something come up where it's a rules interaction you didn't know, you ended up drawing an extra card by mistake. Floor judge comes to you, uh, they ask you a few questions, they ask your opponent a few questions, and they say, oh, it sounds like you've committed the infraction of hidden card error, and because of that you have an extra card in hand, we're going to have your opponent choose a card from your hand and shuffle it back into your library. You can go ahead and accept that ruling if you think that's correct, but if you have an issue with that, maybe you think that there's additional information that needs to be considered that the judge didn't ask for, or Maybe you're about to lose the game if this happens and you just need to win this game because it's your winning and you have the right to appeal by expressing that to the floor judge who took the ruling and that floor judge will go off and get the head judge. They'll explain what they have done so far, the information they've gotten, and when they can, they'll bring the head judge to the table and that head judge will ask a few more questions and then uh, come up with a final ruling which cannot be appealed any further. The head judges say is final. I guess the main two things I want to talk about with that is that one, as I said before, you always have the right to an appeal. While floor judges are great and 
we're all humans. We all have a chance to make mistakes. So like I said, whether you think it's wrong or if you just, this is your last ditch effort and it's make or break for top eight, you have the right to an appeal so that you have the person who's in charge of the event who's going to be making that say on that call if you want to. The other thing is as part of tournament policy, you do need to hear the entire ruling from the floor judge before you request the appeal. If the floor judge comes over and they say, hey, this is hidden card error and we're going to, and you cut them off and say, I, I want to appeal to the head judge. That is what we consider unsporting conduct. And you will receive a warning for unsporting conduct for interrupting a judge in the middle of the call. So it's one of those things where you have the right to an appeal. And like I said, we're humans and we make mistakes sometimes, but also we're humans and please respect us enough to allow us to try to do our job as well as possible before you decide that you'd like to appeal to the head judge. What do you do if you think the head judge is wrong? Like, let's say, for example, you know, you've played at another tournament before you played at the big SCG. They, you know, they, they ruled the correct thing on Thalia with cascade cards and blah, 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 you know. And then you're at an event and the judge is saying a different thing than what you've heard before and given before, you know, like, and maybe an event of the same size or bigger size. How do you approach that sort of situation? If it's a floor judge giving that ruling, that's sort of, you know, what the appeal process is for. If the ruling is being given to you, if you're spectating someone else's game and you know, it's a floor judge giving a ruling to someone else that you believe is incorrect because of, like you said, you've seen it ruled in different ways at different events, or you've seen it work differently on Moto or things like that. Or on the flip side, it's the head judge is giving what you believe to be an incorrect ruling. Please tell us. Like, the thing is, when I'm in an event, if I give a ruling and the players accept it and we move on and I say, oh, sweet, I got that right. And I'm going to keep on doing that same ruling for that interaction until I learn otherwise, which who knows how many more times it might come up. If it's the head judge of the event and you know you're in the middle of appeal, you may have to accept their ruling in the moment and they may ask you to move on with your game as it is. But still feel free to talk to them afterwards and sort of like bring to them more evidence and be like, hey, like, can we please look into this further? Because like, I really think that I've seen it this other way. And I want to know if I'm wrong or like if this ruling was wrong and you need to change it for the future. Myself as a judge, you know, like I said, judges are humans and we make mistakes. And I've definitely made mistakes where I've realized in the middle of an event that I messed up a call two rounds ago. And I do my best when I can to find those players, whether sometimes they find me and help me correct my ruling or other times I'm just talking to another judge and sort of like debriefing a call and they're like, well, shouldn't it be this other thing? And in those times, whenever I can, I always try to go to those other judges or sorry, to those players that had the call. And I'll apologize for getting it wrong for one thing, because it sucks to get an incorrect ruling. And then also I tend to thank them. Because, you know, getting something wrong and realizing you're wrong and then learning how it's correct is one of the best ways to make sure that you get it correct in the future. The parts of policy or the rulings I've gone wrong and gotten corrected on are the things that stick strongest in my mind. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to mess that up again because I remember exactly how it felt to be corrected in that moment. So definitely let us know because if you don't, help us learn or like bring it up to us and have us realize that we're wrong about something, 
we will continue to be wrong. So it's hard to do sometimes, but like respectfully help us learn how we can be better. Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that without judges, tournament magic just doesn't happen. And you don't get to really compete in this thing you love. And that they are people, often players most of the time, and they make mistakes just like you do. Just like, you know, all those judge calls where you made the oopsies, sometimes they're going to make mistakes as well. And while they're typically paid and trained to make sure they don't make those mistakes, just like everything in life, humans make errors. And so it's best to remember that, like, they are your friends. They are like out to help make sure that everyone has as good a time as possible. And that, you know, sometimes they're going to get stuff wrong, but it's not some judge not listening to you or it's not some situation where they're like power hungry or all these absurd things I've heard. It's just a mistake. It sucks when that's like something that really affects your tournament, but it happens so rarely when you think about all the judge interactions. And the best thing you can do is try to help them understand and help bring it up uh, and bring it to light while you're doing uh, that match. Abe, is there anything you want to talk to Garrison or ask Garrison while we have him here before I kind of wrap us up? The one thing I want to ask is if you could tell every Magic player who's playing their first RCQ, like coming up starting in you know just a couple weeks here, when they should call a judge and, and what the best way to make sure they're not handling it weird or like, you know, how to be the most comfortable and how, like, what the things they should be looking out for to call a judge for. It's your first time. When do I do it? I, I know I can do it. Maybe I feel like, oh, I guess this thing works this way. But when is the time where they should be like, I'm just going to call a judge because I, I don't know. If you are unsure about something, call a judge. If you have a question about how an interaction works and your opponent explains it and you're like, mm, I want a second opinion. I want to make sure. Call a judge. If you need to figure out Oracle text, you can actually look it up yourself now, as long as you keep your phone face up for both players, but also feel free to call a judge for Oracle text. If you realize that your opponent did something wrong, call a judge. Don't let them sweep something under the rug because that is not to say that anyone who makes a mistake is a cheater because people make mistakes all the time. But the way that cheaters get away with things is by sweeping things under the rug and saying, oh, we don't need to call a judge about this. Let's just fix it ourselves. If you make a mistake, call a judge on yourself because I guarantee it. And, you know, I'm not going super far into all the different types of infractions and warnings and penalties, but things are not nearly as strict as back in the day. Back in the day, drawing an extra card for any reason was a game loss. These days, you may get something thoughtsies out of your hand, which sucks, but the chances of you lose, like getting a game loss because of something you do if you call a judge on yourself is almost non-existent. So like call a judge and let us fix a thing when you realize you did something wrong as opposed to getting caught trying to hide it, which could be grounds for disqualification depending on how things break down or how things are accused or like if you're accused of things. When you're calling a judge, feel like be loud for one thing, you know, we say to, you know, say judge loudly and raise your hand and keep your hand in the air until a judge gets to you. Feel free to tell your opponent before you do it. There's plenty of times when players just immediately shout out judge as loud as they can and their play, their opponent is taken aback. Feel free to tell your opponent like, hey, I want to check with a judge about something. Judge. Um, as well, 
like I said, you're allowed to ask questions to judges away from the table. So if you have an interaction that you're not sure about, do that. Or, and this is sort of like the most extreme case, if you think your opponent's cheating in some way, you probably shouldn't tell your opponent like, hey, I think you're cheating or hey, judge, I think my opponent's cheating right now. But instead, call a judge and say, oh, I've got a question away from the table. You know, grab your hand, walk away from the table. And I've seen players like even sort of like act like they're talking about the stack. And, you know, they're putting their hands on top of each other and be like, oh, this thing, then this thing. But actually, as they're talking to the judge, like, I think my opponent's cheating. I saw them shuffle in a weird way or I think that they're doing this one thing. So, like I said, if you're unsure about rules interaction, if you need Oracle's text, if your opponent does something wrong, if you do something wrong or if you think your opponent's cheating or you just in general feel unsure about something, call a judge and we'd love to help you out. Another thing as well, sort of outside the game itself. I talked about judges. We want to make the experience and the event better for everyone. If someone is making your experience worse in some way because they're using slurs, because they're being derogatory, if they're making you feel uncomfortable, call a judge about that as well. We all have different boundaries or different expectations of safety, of emotional safety. But like if a player is hurting your experience in some way, we want to know about it and we want to do something about it to make that experience better for you and the people around you that might also be affected by it. Garrison, is there anything you want to say? It's kind of your moment. You know, thank you so much for coming on the show and everything was great to have you. Like I said, judges are such a pivotal part of the game. So I want to give you a moment. If there's anything you want to say about judges or just in general, this is kind of your your moment. Yeah, I guess uh, two things. I crowdsourced a few of my judge friends and were like, hey, what things should I say? One of the points that they point out to me as well, you know, we want to be your friends. At the same time, we may not always treat you like a really good friend when we come to the table. You know, Mason, when I take a call for you, I've known you for years. I might not know who your opponent is. So when I come to the table and I say, oh, hey, players, what's going on? And you're like, oh, Garrison, I had this thing come up. All of a sudden, sometimes the opponent might be like, huh, you know the judge and I don't. He must be your friend. I wonder if he's going to be impartial or not. So even though you may know us, it can still sometimes be a good friend to just, you know, call for judge and say like, oh, hey, judge, this is what's going on instead of, hey, Garrison, this is what's going on in our game. Even though Garrison gave me a good ruling, because once in my life go my way, just anything. (laughs) Rarely happens. (laughs) I know. It's very frustrating. I, I guess the other thing is that RCQs are coming up and super excited about that. One of the things, you know, back in the day of PPTQs, each event used to require a level two judge in order to be sanctioned. Right now, at least in America with DreamHack RCQs, that is not a requirement. Go to the events that you want to go to, go to the stores that, you know, that you feel welcome at and have the right prize support and the schedule works out for you and is the format that you want. But be aware that not every store will have judges present. And if possible, go to stores that do have judges present. I don't know whether that involves like calling ahead or if those stores are going to proactively advertise that they have judges on staff. I've seen some post that, some others that don't. But in general, I hope that you have a better experience or that your tournament experience is better for having judges present. But also, if stores that have judges are consistently getting more people to show up to their RCQs and having better experiences there, 
that may encourage other stores to staff more judges and sort of, you know, I love to see more judges events because I believe in the program and I believe that we're providing a service that is useful to players. But for the player perspective, if you want to go to events that are run by judges, see what you can do about encouraging your local stores to do what they can to get judges there because they're not a requirement like they used to be. And they are an investment sometimes, you know, People ask about whether we work for free. We tend to like to get paid for standing at events for eight plus hours and things like that. But yeah, reach out to your stores and see what you can do to encourage them to find the ability to have judges at their events, because I think it will make your event experience better in general. Anecdotally, I've never, ever heard a story of an event where someone was like, that event was a horror show. There were too many judges. (laughs) So... Definitely, I didn't even realize that they had uh, that they had changed that. So that's anyone who can convince their LGS to hire a judge for an event for their RCQ does, because judges really do uh, they really do make running events easier. Not only as someone who's worked in LGS, not only on the players who are playing, but as, on the staff who's running the event, who's also manning the store. It just makes everything run a lot smoother to have the extra hand and uh, super super good stuff. Judges. I've said a couple times in the show, they are the kind of the reason you get to have tournament magic the way that they have it. In a lot of ways, they are people who kind of sacrifice, for lack of a better term, their ability to play magic on a weekend. You know, like when you're so excited for, let's say, you know, NRG Milwaukee or whatever, you know, people like Mac, like Garrison, they give up their weekend where they also typically like to play to help make those events happen. And so judges are 99% of the time, in my experience, uh, out there doing what's best for you, the player. And so I think doing anything you can to help and support them is super important. And please remember they are people and, you know, they're going to make mistakes and they're going to do things that are, you know, right and wrong or whatever, but uh, they're just doing what they think is best to help make the game and the tournament move forward. Garrison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. It was great to have you on, bud. I guess I'll see you at the Card Monster Con pretty soon. Yeah. For another big tournament. Yeah. Well, it was great to have Garrison on, but we need to do the next part of the show, Abe. And that's the Patreon question, because CCMTG will always be free. But if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com, get access to a lot of cool things. You get access to Discord. With the Discord, you're able to talk to the people who are trying to do similar things. You get access to our deck list, ask questions, and ask specifically questions that end up on the show, just like this one from Andrew and Andrew asks the question, if you think you have a broken deck that can attack the metagame and you're 4-0 in a Moto League, sorry, should you drop to hide information? In short, no, not anymore. The stakes aren't high enough. The the upside isn't high enough. Like that used to be a thing, especially for like Pro Tours where people would do that. But I think that now it's just not the same. And the long version is that I think you actually probably get more out of your new idea getting published, other people looking at it, like thinking about it, making updates to it, and then playing it, than you do out of trying to keep it under wraps and work on it yourself, because the ideas that other people have can be really, really valuable. And if they're investing their time, that's how you kind of wind up having growth you didn't even think you could have around a deck. Like I've seen this with the the Pyre Humans deck. I like had that list, we played it, it was cool. And seeing so many different people have their takes on humans, try out, you know, different parts of the pieces together to see what of it is really 
the powerful stuff. And, uh, you know, I've already had several ideas for innovations for that deck just based off of seeing two or three other people play ideas that they had for this this concept that I had at the core, which was I can attack red-black with a creature deck that will outgrind it in a way that collect company decks can't. And sure, that was true, and we were beating black-red with it, but now I feel like I know a lot more about how to build it to beat other things too because of the fact that I get to benefit from other people who now know it's a known quantity and can work on it. And you'll still have that time, I think, even if you did actually break it, where it will still be ahead of the curve. You know, Not everyone spends all their time or any time looking at Magic Online 5.0 lists or you know the cutting edge of things. And so you still have that, that one RCQ, that tournament coming up that you want to play where your deck is, is still going to be ahead of the curve. It will probably still be ahead of the curve. So I don't know if you have a, a different opinion, Mason. The thing to remember is that like, no matter what, it's really hard for something to drastically change a metagame. Even something like an SCG metagame, where big events with high stakes, right? Where we've seen events in the past, like in the late 2019s, early 2020s, where there were big innovations. And very quickly, like all the grinders, you would see them like rush to Twitter and be like, can I borrow this card? But we didn't see huge metagame shifts, despite that information often being very public or on Patreons, where if we're being honest, everyone was sharing everyone's information, Right. And so, like, this information was out there. Um, but you don't see these huge shifts. And a 5-0 deck list being posted on Modo won't make a huge shift, even if Aspiring Spike, the biggest Magic streamer, sees it and goes, this is literally the best deck I've ever seen since Fairies, picks it up and goes 20 and over it. You know, like, just one stream wins a bunch in a row. There are going to be more people playing it, and people will know about it. But you probably don't lose such a huge edge. And like what Abe said, let's say you have something like that, but Spike's like, this is the best deck ever when you switch one A for B, right? And it might be obvious, but you just didn't see it. And then now the deck gets a whole new like, oh yeah, now the mana's great, you know? Where like, this is so much better or my cyborg plan makes so much more sense. And getting that help, I think is really important. So I think get your 5-0, get your tickies, tweet at Fire Shoes, let the world know. The sharing information makes your deck probably better, not worse. Another way to get on the show, and I got a question that kind of heard or asked, is by going over to YouTube and commenting on the most recent episode of the show. And then questions like this one get to be asked. And it can be anything, you know, kind of silly, whatever. Or maybe something a bit more magic kind of theory or metagame based. I feel like I chose a terrible time to finally buy into blue-white control and modern. But it was what I had, a decent of playing standard blue-white for the past few years. And now I'm kind of with it. Any chance Esper might be worth splashing in the future for Guile and snapping away some of those money cards from our opponents as a way to stick up with the metagame? Abe, what do you think about that sort of question? You know, blue-white control, great versus a lot of decks, but unfortunately things like Money Pile do just devour that deck in the arena of ideas. What uh? What's your your kind of thoughts on this? I think Bloyd still, you know, it's not a it's not a terrible deck. It's, you can still win a lot of matches with at a local level. I think that your four color matchup is tough, but it's winnable. You can like stick to fairy and ride it out uh, a decent amount of the games. I would say that if you really feel like you're worried about that matchup, a good approach could be to have Thoughtseize as a cheap way to interact. They're pretty bad at like defending their hand from things like that in in the pre board games, and it can be a good way to stop run and six from hitting the table, which is usually one of the cards that buries blue-white the most. I would like to shout out 
Mikey Hopkins in our Discord, who is a huge, like I, I've known for years, a huge blue white and uh, blue white X control guy in all formats. Super good resource if you ever want to talk about this, if you, if you wind up joining the Patreon, having access to the Discord. But he even recently posted some lists that he liked. And I think that's kind of a, a response people are having is trying to find, especially now that you have the Triome, more ways to leverage that in maybe flexing towards the way that the metagame is moving compared to just being blue-white. So I would say, you know, if you think it's something that might work, you have very little to lose, assuming you own the cards already, by trying it out and seeing how it works. So uh, I definitely think the Ren and Six problem being solved is really good, and I think uh, the mana is probably pretty easy to support it, and maybe even like things like Fatal Push can be pretty helpful in some of the matchups like Shadow that are popping up, or Murktide where people play a lot of um, Ledger Shredder and Ragavan, which can both be pretty problematic for blue-white in the early game, uh, especially mm-hmm. Dashed Ragavan. So, sounds like it makes some sense to me. I don't know how you feel, Mason. The main problem I have with the, the theory and the proposed solution is that you need to have pressure to back up the Thought Seize, otherwise... The four-color control deck, if it's not pressured by like a, a quick Teferi or something like that, or a Wandering Emperor, you will just recoup the lost cards because your deck is so redundant and so good at finding the same pieces and just churning and churning and churning. So that's my main worry with that, but I'll, I'll link the sauce. I'm not sure if it's actually good, but I thought about this for a while. And I think that the thing the blue-eyed players should maybe do to get the edge against four-color players is play Karn the Great Creator. Yeah, Abe's eyes just went, what? Well, I think like Karn the Great Creator randomly hoses a lot of matchups in modern. <laughs> I love Ape's face in the video long yes. You get access to Torpor Orb, which is like not an effect you want to bring in, but you get to have. You get Liquid Metal Coating and attacking our mana is actually like a very good way to beat the four color deck. One thing I'll set the mirrors when I talk to people about it is Ren Six and Omnath are the most important cards because they give you the most mana consistently in bursts. And that's really why they're strong. Like they obviously have other factors, but like that is the main reason. So uh, having written, having Karn uh, negate Ren 6 with Liquid Metal Coating or Pithing Needle type effects, I think you could have a very small condensed sideboard and have Karn the Great Creator in some number in your main deck. And then that gives you game also against a lot of other random decks in Modern that are weirdly sometimes hard matchups for blue-white control. And you kind of get that angle of the deck without having to make your mana a stretch and have sometimes cards like Thoughtseize that need to line up the right way and put you in weird spots. So having to tap out for Karn can be kind of awkward at times, but I believe that you can actually go a pretty long ways with Karn in your sideboard. That's really interesting. I've never thought of doing that in blue-white, but there there could be some amount of, especially if you're really worried about targeting four colors, some amount of sacred cows in your sideboard that you could do away with to have a modest, you know, five to seven card Karn wishboard or something. I, I imagine Chalice is very good against things like Living End um, yep. and Rhinos, the Cascade decks. There, there's a lot of lot of hosers that you could probably play. I, I can see it. It is pretty interesting to think of Karn as just the new Jace, right? It, instead of being like, I'm going to brainstorm every turn and start pulling away ahead of you, I'm going to start blowing up all your lands and you're going you're gonna to play a small game. So that's definitely very interesting. I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I'm not positive that it's it's going to actually solve it, but I'm pretty sure um, that it would go a ways. Now, it might make other matchups worse or whatever, but I think if you're already stretching your mana and putting the season stuff in, that you're willing to take some sort of risk. So, if you own Karn the Creator and you have like Liquid Metal Coating, Torpor, Pithing Needle, and like Chalice of the Void, probably go right ahead. I also think yeah, maybe one thing that's a threat. 
yeah, like a walking, like honestly, walking ballista goes like a long way, or some card that doubles as a sideboard. Abe's based on that one. It's kind of, like, <laughs> hmm, you know. But like you know, there's lots of things you can do. Like there's a lot of cards in modern. Don't be afraid to get a little weird with it. Uh, that's all I have to say. And I, I do think blue white is quite good in the format outside of the four color matchup. Uh, and to some weird extent, the living in matchup gets kind of weird sometimes where like you draw the right half of your deck, it's unlosable. You draw the wrong half, it's unwinnable. You know, maybe there's something to be said about that. But I do think the deck is pretty strong, all things considered, even though the most pop, the most thing that's going to probably win the most tournaments is a really bad matchup. So uh, stick with it and don't be, you know, summary dismissal. We've seen a lot of weird stuff pop out of blue white to try and answer the problem. So it happens every now and again. That's going to do it for the main part of the show. Abe, if everyone wants to find you, where can they go? You can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. I still do offer hammer coaching. So if you're, like I said last week, a brave enough soul to keep on weathering on in the face of all of this four color, uh, I would love to help you uh, do your best at it. And awesome. how about you, Mason? If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. Find me each every week on Card Kingdom, where I write articles. This week's all about Pioneer. If you're looking for coaching to kind of get ready for the RCQ season and maybe Atlanta and stuff like that, my DMs are open. I am starting to get to the point where I might actually have to close it because I've kind of got people every day, but I still have a little bit more room. So if that's something you're interested in, feel free to reach out and do that. And that's all the places you can find me. There's still so many more great shows you can find on the network. So make sure to check out the rest of the shows like Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black, where it's all about limited all the time. Uh, I imagine we're getting a double Masters. That's a draft set. I don't know if Sam will cover it. I think traditionally hasn't. But the streets of New Capenna is a long winter. So we'll, we'll see what happens with the double Masters set. This is Sam's first go around with that. Obviously, one of the greatest minds in Magic, especially when it comes to limited. And then you also want to check out Common Knowledge. It is a popper podcast all Popper, all the time. Popper, by the way, along the Double Masters line, getting huge injections of power. So many cards shifted from rare to common in Double Masters that that format is going to get spicy. When Popper is spicy, it is a really, really fun time. So you want to check that out. I'm sure the guys over on that show will be doing their set review and talking about all the new additions, probably here in the next week or so, with a set coming out. Can you believe it, Abe? And just, I think it's a week and a half from now, so right around the corner. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Chrism, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of CCMTG.